This episode is sponsored by the newly released South African action movie Indemnity. When a traumatized ex-firefighter in Cape Town wakes up next to his wife's murdered body with no recollection of what transpired, he finds himself labeled as the prime suspect. He goes on the run and is soon hunted by a notorious police chief and an unknown third party. He must now fight for his life and find out who killed his wife before a conspiracy changes the course of a nation forever. Starring a proudly South African cast, with Jared Cadult in the lead, who, by the way, did all of his own stunts, every single one. Jared, suspended out of a 21-story window, actually Jared. Starring alongside Jared are Gail Mabalani and Nicole Fortain, in South Africa's biggest action film in terms of action sequences to date. Indemnity releases in cinemas nationwide on the 13th of May and promises to fast become the gem in the South African film industry's action movie crown. A huge thank you goes out to Indemnity for supporting I Lived Through This. And he said, heroin, heroin death sentence. When I saw that, I was like, I'm going to die. They're going to execute me. I felt that was the cause of his death. Try to catch me howling at the The stories told on I Lived Through This are told by those who experienced them in good faith. The views expressed by the survivors in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of me, the podcast, or any sponsor of the show. Some of the stories on this podcast may include triggers for some listeners, including descriptions of injuries, sexual violence, abuse, and other triggering topics. Please consider this when listening to this podcast. My name is Nicole Engelbrecht. You may know me from my other podcasts, True Crime South Africa or the Devil's Dorp Companion Podcast. Throughout my podcast journey, in talking to survivors and the family members of victims, I discovered the life-changing power of stories. Stories told from the heart, as a narrative of a human being's lived experience, are enormously impactful for both the storyteller and the listener. In my new podcast series, I Lived Through This, I bring you the stories of ordinary people who faced seemingly insurmountable odds and survived to tell you the tale in their own words. From getting trapped in a destructive cult, surviving an abusive relationship, living through a natural disaster, 
life-changing disease, and even the fight for survival with a wild animal. Join me for these powerful tales of facing the unimaginable and fighting to be able to say, I lived through this. This is a Killer Audio Creations production. Have you ever wondered what it might be like to be in prison? For the most part, when we think about people in prison, we think about hardened criminals who deserve to be there, right? I mean, you do the crime, you do the time. But what if you didn't do the crime? Or at least you had no idea you were. And what if you aren't a hardened criminal? What if you just went on a holiday slash business trip and you never came home? Vanessa Horson survived 16 years in a Thai prison after being duped into carrying drugs through customs. This is her story. If my experience can encourage or strengthen someone else or lift someone from their present predicament that really caused them to feel like they're kind of in a deep black hole or they just don't have hope. And that is why I don't mind sharing my story if it could help someone else. Because I I believe whatever we go through is never for our own benefit. It's always for the benefit of others. So my story started in 1994 when I entered the Miss South Africa competition. But just to give you a little bit of background or My childhood, I was raised by a single mom because uh, my father died in a car accident when I was like very young. I think I was less than two years old with my siblings. That was my two brothers and my my four sisters. Uh, I've lost two of them. Lost my other sister just now last year in June due to COVID. Yeah, I raised by a single mom. and But when I was at the age of 11, I went to live in Johannesburg. I live with my aunt. And my aunt was Muslim, so yeah, I lived with them for some time, went to school, completed school, and I entered modeling, yeah, and I went to a modeling agency, started doing modeling, did ramp modeling, did photographic modeling, and uh, also did, entered competitions which uh, from school, where I did win a lot of uh, titles, which really like inspired me, and I always would dream about entering Miss South Africa. <laughs> And I said to myself, I'm going to enter Miss South Africa one day. And eventually I did. I entered Miss South Africa and made it to the semifinals. Vanessa fell in love with the world of fashion, clothing and modeling and opened her own clothing store with her then boyfriend. Yeah, I had a clothing store. I had a boyfriend then. We were both like into clothing and really enjoyed, you know, like designing clothing. Not but I was... Uh, a qualified designer, but uh, I worked with a guy from West Africa who was absolutely amazing. And, you know, I would just give him these ideas and he will actually like really make it come to reality. And that was just amazing. I actually enjoy that a lot. So we opened a clothing store in Colton Center and it was a men's clothing store. And then we also had a factory where we actually supplied other uh, outlets in Colton Center and also were taking orders from for ladies' clothing or 
if it was for school tracksuits or anything else like that, because I had a factory and I had a few people working under this guy from West Africa who was um, really amazing and he was really excellent at what he was doing. I really enjoyed what I was doing and I also loved modeling. I enjoyed modeling. Yeah, also I worked at this uh, one clothing store, which uh, I learned a lot and was running like other three clothing stores. That is where I really learned a lot and gained a lot of knowledge concerning clothing and running a clothing store. So this is where Vanessa finds herself in 1994. She's starting out in the fashion business, hungry for knowledge and experiences, and then she gets presented with what seems like a huge opportunity. My boyfriend had this uh, guy that, you know, he would come and talk to him like at the store. His name was um, Jackson. And he dressed very nice, you know, always what like attracted me to guys is like the way they dress, uh, you know, because you're looking at things that it is really in fashion and people are looking for. So that is why I always would look at guys like how they dress. And also it's been given us ideas like more or less which way we should actually cause our clothing line to go into yeah, then uh, Jackson one day we started speaking to us about, you know, buying uh, material in Bangkok in Thailand because I started questioning him about where does he get his clothing from. And he started t- telling me that he gets his material in Bangkok in Thailand. So that's where the conversation started and, you know, started getting me like very excited. I've never traveled abroad. So I started having this conversation with Jackson and then it kind of just like excitement at that particular time, also the entering the South Africa uh, was just for me, I felt like really, really good. And until me and my boyfriend, we started talking and he said like, you know, why don't we just explore the fashion industry in Thailand? And my boyfriend is like, no, okay, he will go. And he's like, not really trusting me to go as a, a lady by herself. But I was like very adamant, very excited. And I really wanted to do that. Always like wanted to travel as well. Vanessa convinces her boyfriend that she is more than capable of going to Thailand on her own to source the new material and designs for their business. Vanessa's young and idealistic, and she's setting off to a foreign country on her own for the first time. So eventually I went to Thailand, and uh, when I got to Thailand, I made contact uh, to import material back to South Africa. You know, even while I was there, I actually got sick. Uh, it was very hot and humid. And, and then I was also pregnant at that time. So everything kind of made me nauseous. It made me feel sick. And I, and their food was weird. And I couldn't eat everything they have, you know. I, I was eating mostly of the fruit and drank a lot of uh, pineapple juice. I actually loved the pineapple juice that I, I drank so much that I actually, my lips started burning very badly because of drinking so much pineapple juice, but I loved it. I really did. Vanessa is in the early stages of her first pregnancy. She's already not feeling great, and now she's adjusting to an entirely new cuisine and climate. But she has things to do. She's not just there for a holiday after all, so she starts visiting the local markets to see what she can find for her clothing store. And it is when she arrives at one particular market and decides to buy a cold drink that she starts to experience the darker side of Thailand. And I actually, when I took a Pepsi and I wanted to purchase a Pepsi, and as I bent down, I just felt a motorbike pass me. 
And then I just got up to take, put my hand in my handbag to take it, my purse out to actually pay for this Pepsi. And when I looked, I had no wallet in my bag. <laughs> and then I saw my bag had two layers. So in the one layer where my purse was, was cut. And the only thing I could think about is that the that motorbike that passed me, there was two guys on the motorbike, but I didn't feel anything, didn't see. I just felt the motorbike pass me. And I couldn't believe how they cut my bag without me actually feeling they removed my purse from me. So that for me was kind of shocking. I didn't realize that is what was happening at that time, but that is the only people that I could think about. But it was just unbelievable, professional how they did it. But luckily, I didn't have all my money in my purse or my passport. It was in the safe at the hotel. Vanessa gets back to her hotel after her ordeal, and she receives a message that someone has found her purse. She speaks to the man on the phone, and he tells her that her hotel key card is still in the purse, and there are some South African rands and photographs in there. Vanessa's really only concerned about the photographs, as they're of her late father. So she arranges to collect the purse. But when she gets to the arranged meeting place... The man is in a meeting. She waits for a long time and then eventually leaves. As her strange and unpleasant experiences in Thailand start to rack up, back at the hotel, she gets a phone call from Jackson. Remember the guy who put her onto the whole Thailand trip in the first place? Yeah, him. Jackson contacted me and he said to me that uh, his brother Obi is in Thailand and that he has engineering books for him because he's studying engineering. Could I bring those books back for him? And I said to him, no, it's not a problem. Just tell him to bring it. And then he also said to me, can I help him to buy the police brand? He wanted jeans, a shirt, whatever. Gave me the sizes and, uh, and that to get for him and to bring it to South Africa. So then he just said to me, his brother will give me the money. But you know, talking to you now, I never actually... Looked at it this way. Why didn't he let his brother buy the clothing? Why should I buy it? Because he was in there. Why? I've never even thought about this. It just came to me now as I'm talking to you. Like, why? Why did he have to me to buy it? You know, actually, he, he could have bought it and then just bring it to me. So I want to do a quick sidebar here. Because you're witnessing firsthand a very powerful part of storytelling. Almost without fail. Every single time I have the honor of listening to someone tell me their story in this way, when they tell it chronologically from start to finish, this almost always happens. They remember something, or they have some revelation they previously not even realized about their own story. I think so often we tend to focus on the single life-changing moment of trauma so intensely that we completely forget about the bits before and the bits after. That often can very significantly change the context of what that event means to us. So if you've never told your story chronologically from start to finish without interruption to someone, try it. You might be amazed at the insights you suddenly discover. So Vanessa's agreed to take some books back for Jackson, textbooks, allegedly. 
and now she's agreed to also take some clothing back to him. She meets Jackson's brother, Obi, to receive the items she's been asked to take back. But anyway, his brother came. But then I asked him that, you know, if his brother came, can he, because I couldn't eat the food, can he bring me some fruit, like proper fruit? I wasn't familiar with the fruit in Thailand. So he came and then uh, he was just uh, introducing himself. And like, you know, he is Jackson's brother and stuff like that. And am I okay? He heard that I got uh, robbed and stuff like that. And I just said, you must be careful. Yeah, then so eventually he brought the books to me. Uh, it was uh, hardcover engineering books. And I just looked at it. Nothing. I put it back in the bag. It didn't interest me. And then I just continue with my shopping spree. And I'm telling you, being in Thailand, if you've never been in Thailand, and for those who have been there, you would know what I'm talking about. You actually can go crazy about the clothing there. So, yeah, I kind of like lost myself almost <laughs> thinking about only buying clothes for myself. And I actually was had to look for the shop and see what can I kind of purchase ideas and things in Thailand. For but I really, really enjoyed it. As all good things do, Vanessa's trip to Thailand has come to an end, and she now has to start getting packed up and ready to return to South Africa. And that is where things all start to go very, very wrong. Then when I had to return back to South Africa, I also bought like fashion magazines, you know, to see what is there that we can use in South Africa. And uh, so when I was at the airport, there was like a random check. They make everybody open their bags. So my, my luggage had to go through the scanner first and then everybody opened it. So this one guy, he was looking through my luggage and then he looked through the magazines. But when he came to the engineering books, he picked up one and he, and he took a small pocket knife and he put it in the spine of the book. And when he did that, powder came out. And he just started talking, you know, in this language. I saw that. I'm thinking of myself, why would somebody want to hide powder in a book? You know, so that kind of alarmed me. And the guy took me away. And, and what he said to me, which stuck with me for a very, very long time, when he said to me, one moment, please, <laughs> not knowing that moment is going to turn into many, many years. Isn't it funny what sticks in our heads? And yes, I can fully understand why that would stand out to Vanessa now. Because what she thought would be one moment was about to become a living nightmare of many, many moments. If you've ever watched any of these customs reality shows where they search people and arrest them for being in the possession of things they shouldn't be, you'll already have a mental picture of the scene that is about to play out. And he took me in a small room. And when I got to the small room, there was a lot of police officers and they were taking pictures and, you know, they had cameras in my face and, and I was like trying to cover myself and they were just laughing a lot. Hey, uh, they got a few people out of the room and then eventually they took the books and they opened it. When they removed the cover from the, of the spine of the book, if there was a plastic in the spine, when they took the plastic out, like in the plastic was the powder, was rolled, there was powder rolled in that uh, plastic. 
So they took that out and then they tore the, the paper off the hardcover. And when they did that, the cover was like hollowed out and it was filled with powder in the front cover and in the back cover. So when I looked at that, I was just like, I'm in trouble. I'm really in trouble. You know, the only thing I could think about was that that is cocaine because people got arrested on news. And that is what I was familiar with, with cocaine. And I started to panic. I started to hyperventilate. So as they were taking the powder out and they put it on a scale, he put some of it in the tester and he came to sit next to me and he was shaking it. And so he turned purple. And he looked at me and he said, heroin. I never heard of heroin. I don't know what heroin is, but I was just happy it's not cocaine. So young and innocent Vanessa's grand knowledge of drugs is cocaine. That's what she's always heard people getting arrested for. So when she hears that it's not cocaine, she's actually relieved because she has no idea what heroin is. And she has no idea that this is far, far worse. One guy, he came and he took me to a poster and it was written in English and it said heroin death sentence. When I saw that, I was like, I'm going to die. They're going to execute me. You know, so I completely just went into panic mode. I had a, it felt like a heart attack, but only understanding now I had a panic attack. And then they took me into a small room. And when I got in the small room, you know, when, when you get bad news and you just go into shock, I think that was shock. You see what's happening in front of you. You hear, but you're not there. My heartbeat was so fast. And the fear, I was overpowered by fear. I had so much fear. That, and um, this lady, she put me on the bed, laid me on the bed and I was just laying there and I could only hear my heartbeat and uh, that I was so scared. I was so, I was over, like really, I had so much fear inside of me. And as I was laying there, I don't know, this is a weird thing and I don't know who would understand this or not. But as I was laying there, I just heard this voice and it was telling me to get up from the bed. So I'm looking and I'm like, but people here doesn't speak English. You know, but it was so strong and I heard, you know, it again, get up. So I jumped up and I stood in front of the bed, not even knowing why I had to do that. And I was just standing there and this lady was trying to get me back on the bed. And then, and then I realized that they wanted to take an x-ray. And I told her, no, I can't take an x-ray because I'm pregnant. She didn't understand what I was saying. And I demonstrated to this lady that I am pregnant. And then I started to get sick. I wanted to vomit. And um, she took me to the bathroom and I started vomiting. But she stood in the door. Uh, she didn't allow me to close the door. And as I was vomiting and I came out to rinse my mouth and she went in the bathroom and she had a stick. I was like, what is she doing? You know, this lady's going on my vomit for what? I don't know. I didn't know at that time. It's only after when I got to the prison when I asked them. 
when they said to me that no, people swallow drugs. And that is what they taught that I swallowed drugs and I was lying that I'm not pregnant. Having recorded a few of these episodes now, and having had the privilege of listening to a few of these survival stories, this voice telling you to do things is a theme I've heard from many people. Now, your interpretation of that is going to be based on your own belief system. But at a very base concept, I think that your body and your subconscious know and understand things that your conscious mind can push aside. And especially when our lives are threatened, those very base instincts take over. So whatever you think that voice is, let's call it your gut. Listen to it. When it says, get out of there, get out of there. Vanessa never could have guessed that her trip to Thailand would end up with someone digging through the contents of her stomach, and she's starting to lose control of her emotions. They took me back and put me on a bench next to a police officer. As I was sitting on this bench, my mind was really running around with me like crazy. I was like, you know, I felt like I need to scream. I need to pull my hair out. I just, I just couldn't control myself. It's like I, I was so scared of losing control. I was afraid I'm going to lose control. I'm going to lose control and I won't be able to help myself. Won't be able to think. I won't be able to do nothing. So that scared me. What scared me was I'm going to lose control. That is what I was scared of most. And then I said to myself, I need to do something. I need to calm down. I need to do something. I need to do something. I need to do something to calm down. I need to control myself. I kept on telling myself that. And, you know, right there, I realized that when you're in a situation, you're so desperate to get out that you don't care what you're doing. And now I understood that why people, when they're in situations and they're so desperate and they want to get out, that they actually will do anything to get out. So I was in that situation and I was so desperate. I wanted to get out of that situation. I just wanted to leave. And I want to get on the plane. I want to go home. And I knew I needed to do whatever I can to, to just keep my sanity. So this is something that I would not do in my right frame of mind. I, um, <laughs> I can laugh about it now, but at that time it wasn't funny. The police officer was sitting next to me and he was reading the newspaper. So and he was quite calm just reading the newspaper while I'm sitting in a life and death situation. This guy's reading a newspaper. But it doesn't mean that when we go through something that everybody else is going through the same thing. And all I wanted at that time was that if somebody could hug me, that's what I wanted, just to help me to control myself and to calm down. I wanted somebody to hug me and to tell me it's going to be okay. That's all I wanted. <laughs> but uh, just imagine this. <laughs> I can laugh now, but it wasn't funny. You know what I did? I, I got so desperate. I was so desperate for that hug. Because I felt I had no other alternative. Otherwise, I'm going to lose my mind. That I actually turned to the police officer and I, I like sat on, I just got on top of him. 
And I put my nails in his arms and I screamed right in his face. Like I screamed. And this guy got such a fright. He pushed me, I fell to the floor and he ran out. And when they came back, they handcuffed me. I don't know. He probably thought I'm now going crazy. I'm definitely losing it. I don't blame him. I would have gotten a fright too. <laughs> this lady sitting next to me in the next minute, she's like kind of attacking me. But I wasn't attacking him. I just wanted a hug. I just wanted, that's what I say, desperate situations cause you to do desperate things. We face desperate situations, always take like a 10 steps back. As Vanessa says, she laughs about it now. But in that moment, I think we can only imagine the terror that led her to seek comfort, physical human contact from a complete stranger in a foreign country. Because in that moment, he was all she had. Sometimes, even if you don't know a person, you might be all they have. Now Vanessa has been handcuffed and Thai airport police are getting ready to move her. And then they picked me up and then they took me. And uh, I could see they want to take me through the airport. Oh, my word. Have I felt ashamed and so disgraceful. I felt dirty. I felt so unclean. I felt, oh, I felt horrible. That I have to walk to that airport and people is going to look at me in handcuffs. I felt like I was naked and um, everybody was just looking at me. Look at my shame, you know. And as I was walking, um, an older guy came to speak to the police officers. He was a Thai guy. He was an older guy. And then he came and he, he stood in front of me. And he just looked at me. And I didn't know what this guy wanted from me. And, uh, and then he took off his jacket. And then he wrapped, covered my handcuffs. I just looked at this guy. I couldn't say thank you. I couldn't say anything. I just cried. I just cried. I could only understand later because you know what he did? He covered my shame. And I didn't know how to be grateful or thankful at that particular time. But I never, ever forget that moment. Never. I have to tell you that when Vanessa told me this, I actually got goosebumps. And when I listened to it again as I was editing this episode, it happened again. We encounter many people in our day-to-day lives. And this simple gesture, this old man using his jacket, which he would never get back, to cover Vanessa's handcuffs, will stay with her forever. How powerful is that? The thought that one simple action from you toward a complete stranger can stay with them for the rest of their lives. Vanessa is put into a minivan. She's surrounded by police officers. She's driven to a nearby building, and when she sees large chains holding the front doors closed, she's convinced that this is where they take people to execute them. The police officers seem to be having the time of their lives, though. They're laughing, 
and utterly jovial as they lead their prisoner into the building. It's dark at first. And after a while, like, lights went on. And when they put the lights on, I could see there was double bunk beds, there was desks, and there was television screens against, you know, like around. And then they started, like, going into my luggage, and the guys were putting on the men's jackets and trousers. But you know what? Uh, At that time, it wasn't important to me. Things that was important to me became less important because now my life was at stake. You know, and I just realized sometimes we place importance on things that's actually not important. And as I'm sitting there and this one guy came in and he sat opposite me and he could speak a little bit of English, broken English. <laughs> he says to me, uh, you, you sleep upstairs or you sleep downstairs? So I asked him what's upstairs. And then he pointed at the beds, pointed at the, uh, the place there, but then they laughed, they laughed. And as I'm sitting there, they they played porn movies on that um, on the TV. And I asked him what's downstairs. And he said to me, they laughed and they say big, big foreign men. Yeah, I was scared. I didn't know what was gonna be awaiting me downstairs, but because I heard foreign, there's foreign men um downstairs. I was like, somebody speaks English, so that is a relief. Somebody must speak English. So I said to him, take me downstairs. Any woman will be intimately familiar with the fear of being surrounded by a large group of strange men. It's just something that's been built into us that tells us you are not safe here. Now, Vanessa is surrounded by a group of strange men who do not speak English. They are police officers who could pretty much do whatever they wanted to her with impunity. And she's given a choice. Upstairs with the officers who are playing porn on the television, or downstairs with the big, big foreign men. Vanessa chooses the latter. And uh, when I got down, you know, you could like smell like sweat. He told me I must go into the smaller cell. So I went in the smaller cell and I sat on the floor and I just cried. I just cried. There's nothing. There was absolutely nothing in that cell. But I could see against the wall how people was writing on the wall like, uh, please help me and names on there. And, you know, that kind of scared me. Then when the guard left, I heard this guy asking me what's my name, and I didn't respond. And he kept on asking me, what is your name? And his his accent, he was an American. So I was scared. I was just like, I don't know what these guys are in here for. There was a few guys in the cell, not in my cell. There was like kind of a, a space between us, like maybe a five to seven foot space between us. But their cell was quite big and there was a lot of men sleeping on the floor because I kind of came in late at night. So when this guy kept on asking me, I don't respond. I just sat there with my, I was holding my legs and uh, bended legs and I just put my face like between my knees. And he just kept, he says to me, you know what, you need to come out from that cell and you need to stay here close to us. He says, your cell door is open and ours is closed, it's locked. And he said that if you come closer, we will be able to protect you through the bars. 
But I, I didn't know if I should believe this guy or not, because I don't even know what's his plan. Why does he want me close to him with the bars there, you know? So so I said, okay, now I will move outside of the cell and then stay in that 10 foot or whatever space that was. And then they gave me, he pushed through a plastic mat for me and a pillow. And I just sat there and he introduced himself to me. And then he just started talking to me like, and I see he was trying to calm me down and stuff. So, the, And I just sat there and he said to you, you must eat something. And I said, I don't want to eat. And he says, you need to eat. But then I told him by then I'm pregnant and stuff. And he says, you need to eat for the baby's sake. They would uh, give me some food. They would buy, send the, the guards to buy food for them and they would share with me. But I really struggled to eat because in the prison they did give rice, but then it was just with a, an egg, rice with an egg, like a fried egg, or it would be just, a, they eat a lot of pork there. I don't eat pork. So what these guys would send the guards to go buy food and fruits, but whatever they give them in dollars, there's no change. Never get change. So. Yeah, and they would share with me for that. I stayed there, and, and, and me and this guy started speaking a lot. You know, I, I asked him uh, if he could please just sleep next to me then and, and watch me sleep so I can fall asleep. And then he said, no, not a problem. I will watch until you fall asleep. I will stay here and make sure you're okay. So that guy did that every single night. Listening to Vanessa's story, It's so clear how these individuals she crossed paths with made such an impact. Vanessa's in that prison cell because of an individual who tried to use her for their own gain. Her situation is as a result of the worst humanity has to offer. But even as she experiences the consequences of falling victim to someone like that, she's still seeing flashes of the best humanity has to offer. And now, Vanessa starts to understand the deep corruption that runs through the Thai prison system. But also when I was there, the, the guards would come in and they would uh, have a white piece of paper that's folded and they would give it to the inmates and then they would take money. So I asked this guy, what are they giving the inmates, and why are they giving money for a piece of paper? So he says, no, they're selling the heroin you got arrested with (laughs) to the inmates. The guards are selling the heroin that Vanessa is sitting in jail for to the inmates in the same prison cell as her. As you already know from the title, Vanessa is about to spend the next 16 years of her life in a Thai prison for being in possession of that heroin. Thailand claims to be famously hard on drug traffickers, and indeed this seems in principle to be true, but only when they're foreign and don't work for their prison system. The drugs that Vanessa would sit for the next almost two decades of her life in prison for were gone in days into the veins of inmates and into the pockets of prison guards. 
Eventually, Vanessa's American guardian angel has to leave, and she's left alone. But her first court appearance has come up, and she now has bigger problems on her hands. And then eventually I was taken to court. I got to court. I didn't understand anything what they were saying. The only thing I understood was my name. After that, they brought documents, which was written in Thai for me to sign. I said, no, I'm not signing this. I don't know what you're saying. And they got very, very angry with me, and I refused to sign those things. Yeah, and then after that, they put me in a kind of a truck kind of a thing. So when we got to the prison, Laja Woman Correctional Institution, you know, they take your luggage and they check your luggage. And, and then after they tell you to take off your clothes because you can't have any clothing, they gave me a piece of cloth that I have to wrap around me and then loosen my hair. They were checking through my hair, through my mouth, in my mouth, caused me to jump up and down. And then they took me into a small room where they did a whole cavity search, which was very humiliating. And then after that, I had to go take a shower. So the shower was with them. They give you a plastic bowl and um, there's a trough, cold water. So you shower with that bowl. And uh, then they took me up into a room. And when I got to the room, there was a lot of elderly people in this room. And the lady of the room could speak a little bit of English. And uh, she was just asking me, where are you from? How old are you? How far pregnant are you? And stuff like that. And then she gave me a towel. It's like a the size of a beach towel. And then she told me I can go and sleep now. So I had to sleep next <laughs> to the toilet on the floor. So I said to her, why can't I, I sleep on a bed? And she said, no. The people who sleep on the bed, they qualify to sleep in a bed because they stayed more than 20 years. So I was like, I don't want a bed. <laughs> so I opened the towel and I to sleep on the floor because it was tiles. And I have no pillow, so I used my arm. But, you know, I couldn't sleep because people go to the toilet all the time, making noise with water. And uh, I, I also struggled to sleep. I really couldn't sleep. I was crying most of the time. I actually cried myself to sleep, though, because the only thing I could think about was the time when I was supposed to be on the, on the plane back home. And, oh, yeah, that's a crazy, you know, looking back and talking to you now, I'm just like, wow, I survived all that. You know, yes, like everybody else is going through situations. When you're in it, you don't really see. And there's the other moment that so often happens when people are given space to tell their stories chronologically. It's the moment when they go, wow, I actually cannot believe I survived that. Because it inevitably comes. This right here is the power of telling your story and having someone listen to it. Those, wow, I'm quite a badass moments. And don't you just love Vanessa's quirky sense of humor? Her little giggles at her really quite desperate situation in hindsight are really refreshing. Vanessa comes to learn her new routine and she starts to discover that prison life may just be worse than she ever could have imagined. Yeah, so the next morning when we uh, was awoken at 5 a.m. and we had to, like, get in line, and then they do the counting. And obviously somebody counted for me because I couldn't count in time. 
And then we had to like, fold up our blanket and stuff. And then we had to like sit with our legs crossed in a, in a line and wait until they open the door at 6 a.m. So we, you sit on the floor with your legs folded from 5 to 6 a.m. And then something weird happened when they opened the door. <laughs> These people was running out, fighting to get out of the door at the same time. I couldn't understand that. I was just like, why don't they wait? But I didn't understand why they did that only after. Because uh, you run out there, you have to run to get a place to sit. Because there was about 6,000 inmates. So you had to get like a place to sit. So you had to take like a a plastic mat which you purchase in the prison and you have to open it and sit on it and take out your bag, your little blue plastic bag that you also purchase in the prison to keep your clothing and coffee, tea or whatever it is. Uh, and then otherwise, if you don't do that, you will not have a space to sit and you have to run for your bag. Otherwise, if somebody else get hold of it and they steal your stuff, then you won't have nothing. So I was just getting out, didn't know what was happening. And then there was some foreigners. One person gave me a plastic bowl. One gave me a soap. One gave me a toothbrush. One gave me a little toothpaste and uniform. And they just said, I must follow this line. So when I followed this line and I got to the end of it and I realized people was taking a kind of a shower or something, that place was packed. So you had to stand like body to body next to each other with your bowl in your hand and you couldn't scoop water. You had to wait until they tell you to scoop water. So when they actually scream out something, which I didn't understand then, but they will tell you, go. So you scoop only three bowls. They count it for you. And then you have to stop. And then you have to wipe yourself, wash, brush your teeth very, very, very quickly. Because when they start counting from bowl four to bowl 15, that means that you need to rinse and you need to get out because then the other people have to come and uh, they have to take a, a bath. And then you have to get dressed and then you have to go and purchase your own hot water, your food. They were selling bread. They were giving food like uh, three times a day. So it was all just rice, but it was brown rice. Brown rice is healthy rice, but this rice was kind of red and it was not clean properly because we would find things in there. So rice with a soup, you know, they usually just cook up stuff, but it's also not clean properly. Like, um, for example, they will cook like cucumbers with tomato and onion just up like that. And they will throw in some eggs and they just boil it like in a pot of water. So that's what you will eat. And then they have maybe pumpkin, which I love. I love pumpkin, but uh, the pumpkin was just cut with the peel and cooked like that, like in a kind of a, a curry. So what I would do is I would take out the pumpkin. And I will wash it under the water and I will scrape up the pumpkin. You know how we eat it at home with some shoes. When you may be the first person who stand in line to dish up food, they, you don't dish, they dish for you. You can't eat. You have to wait until that whole hall is full. By the time the whole hall is full, your food is cold and you're hungry. So then they will do their prayers first. And after they do their prayers, then you can eat. Now, just think back to the last bath or shower you had. Think about how, for the most part, you could probably take as long as you liked. Now imagine having some very angry Thai ladies screaming numbers at you to indicate when you may or may not scoop up water 
to wet or rinse your body. Something that I found really interesting about what Vanessa told me is that in Thai prisons, prisoners have to buy everything. They're given three so-called meals a day, but everything else, your blankets, toothbrush, toothpaste, soap, you have to buy. So if you land up in a Thai jail and you have no money, like Vanessa, you have to rely on the kindness of others to get you through. Something that we shouldn't forget when Vanessa talks about the type of food she's getting is that she's pregnant. It's not like it's just her nutrition she has to worry about. She's growing a human on rice and egg. Vanessa tells me that they did have a tuck shop of sorts where you could buy food, but even their takeaways were really basic. And if you didn't have money, well, you ate what they gave you. Oh, and pillows were illegal, says Vanessa. They made their own, but they actually weren't allowed to have them. Vanessa was given some small considerations because she was pregnant, but she would soon come to realise that not even health care was provided by the Thai prison system. After they found out I was pregnant, they moved me to the mother's room with plus minus 40 square metre, two open pit toilets in the middle of the room, uh, which I was like not used to, those kind of um, toilets. But after I realised that's the best thing they could have ever done, because having 6,000 inmates and using normal toilets, that's asking for diseases, right? But anyway, you had to purchase everything in that place, even your medication. If you need an operation or anything, you need to pay for it yourself. They don't pay for nothing. And if you don't have the money, you don't get the operation. So other, other governments did support their people, but our government did not support us. You can work in the prison, but it was difficult because they pay you like twice a year and it wasn't even much. But later stage, we fought it. So then we got like every three months. But sometimes you just get a working place because you need a place to sit, to cover yourself when it rains. Because when it rains, you get wet because you're outside. But if you have a working place, then at least you're covered. So you don't care how much they pay you as long as you have a place. As Vanessa's pregnancy progressed, the South African embassy in Thailand requested that prison officials allow her to go to the local hospital for a checkup. Cells were locked down at 5 p.m. at night and only reopened at 6 a.m. the next morning. Being pregnant, Vanessa was desperate for a snack to sustain her during those 13 hours. But this was against the rules, and they weren't bending them for anyone. So Vanessa had to get by with a bottle of water. But she started consuming so much water to suppress her hunger that she began to vomit up the food she had had during the day. After Vanessa's arrival at the prison, she was taken back to court around every two weeks to continue her case. Then, after a while, she would only appear in court every few months. All the proceedings were still being conducted solely in Thai, so she had no idea what was being said about her and her future. When she was nine months pregnant, she was taken to court again, and upon her return to the prison, they removed her sleeping mat from the cell and moved her closer to the office to a hospital-type cell. 
she was confused and asked an Australian woman who'd been incarcerated there for some time why they were doing that. The woman replied that she should just go, because if she went into labour in the middle of the night, the guards wouldn't hear her in her old cell, so she may have to deliver on her own. A few days later, Vanessa starts to experience pains in her back. So then I started having contractions, and I didn't know I having contractions because I just thought I having back pain, and because the weather in October was cold. You know, Thailand is not a cold place, but uh, that's the kind of monsoon season, so it rains a lot. You feel cold because you don't have any. Uh, you wear shorts or the uniform is thin. So I started getting cold. So I thought, no, the weather is causing my back pain. So when this lady came in and she said, what's wrong? I said, no, I have pain. And she sat next to me, but I kept on like grabbing on something. And she says, no, man, Vanessa, this is not normal. You don't have normal pain. You're having contractions. You're going to have a baby. So when that lady told me that, I completely panicked. I got scared. I got afraid. I started crying. And then this one American lady came to me and she said to me, you know, she's got such a husky voice. (laughs) So when she speaks, she scared me. She gave birth in the prison and that, You need to listen to me now. And I'm very grateful for her now because by that time I thought she was a weird woman. You know, you had to listen because of her voice. So she just said to me, this is how you breathe. If you're going to have the baby, this is what you do. She gave me a quick crash course there. (laughs) And then she just said to me that uh, how to push the baby out and I must concentrate on anything in the room, doesn't matter what it is, and then I must control myself, I mustn't panic, I mustn't lose control because it's my life and it's the baby's life, and that was it. So I was in pain for a long time. Only the next day they came and they they took me out after they had a, a, a inmate checking me all the time and I was fighting this lady because she was hurting me and she's an inmate and why is she touching me? And Eventually they took me out. So when I got to the hospital... Uh, everywhere I went, everybody moved away from me. That was so bad. Eh? I felt like I had some contagious disease. And if the earth couldn't swallow me up, I could go there <laughs> because it was so embarrassing. You know, I know it, those people didn't know me, but the fact that I wear the prison uniform, you know, and I also don't blame them that you move away from a prisoner because I probably also would. <laughs> if you're outside, you don't know what they can or what they did or something. They put me on a table first, and it seems like somebody was giving birth inside. And I think um, they put me in the wrong place because there was a man sitting opposite me. And I was having so much pain and so much contractions was getting closer and closer. So I was jumping up and down. The whole time when it comes, I was stood up and I would look at the guy and I would start breathing. You know, I was concentrating on him because that woman said I must concentrate on something. So... Every time I get up, I look at him and I start breathing. So he was even going with me doing the breathing. This Thai guy, I don't know. Then he starts saying something like in a panic way. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm breathing and I'm thinking like, what is this guy saying? So I just look at him and I keep on breathing and he starts telling me something, but I don't understand what this guy is saying. And the next minute he's pointing to me down at my legs. So I look and I realized the blood was running down my legs. And then he ran to go get someone. So eventually they came and then they took me in a room. And when I got into this room, there was like 16 students, eight boys, eight girls. What's going to experiment on me. So there was one doctor and she was guiding them what to do. And, you know, 
I was not happy with these students, but I had no choice because I was a prisoner. But um, you know what was good about them? They spoke English and that really was helping me. I actually like was exhausted. I was tired. I never slept. I was hungry. I didn't eat. And um, I had no strength. And then the doctor was saying that I need to push the baby out. And, you know, I was, I don't want to lay on my back. I just keep on turning to the sides. And then she just said, no, you must stop that. You must lay on your back. And I was like, I don't want to lay on my back. I have too much pain. But then I said, she said, I must push the baby out. I said, no, I can't. I can't push the baby out. So she, they may lay me flat on this bed. I was uncomfortable. I mean, how can you lay me flat on a bed? I said to her, no, I need pillows. Give me pillows. I asked the students to give me pillows. And they said, no, you need to stay like that. You give birth like that. I said, no, I can't. Give me, just give me pillows because I can't breathe properly. I struggle to breathe if I'm laying like it's uncomfortable. They refuse. They didn't give me any pillows. And so I said, I can't push the baby out. So then the doctor came forward and she said, Vanessa, you're causing problems. You know, she was speaking English. And I said to her, I can't push the baby out. I don't have strength. I'm tired and I don't have a pillow. I can't. I can't breathe properly. So she just said to me that you're causing complications. You need to push this baby out. So she got on top of me on the bed and she said to me, she's going to help me push the baby out. When she tell me I must push and then I must do that. So she stood over the bed and she put her hands on top of my stomach. And then she told me to push and then I, you know, like pushed. And then she went down again and she had to cut me twice. I turned around and I just grabbed one of those students and I put my face in her stomach and I screamed like crazy. And then that the baby came out, the, the doctor helped me and she also helped me push out the afterbirth because I was too weak to do it. And um, then they just said, girl, and they took her away. Vanessa has just given birth to her baby and her little girl is taken away from her. At this point, she is weak, in pain, and has no idea what they're doing with her child. She's just had someone push on her stomach to aid delivery and cut her open without any pain medication. And although she has been through a pretty traumatic birth, she soon discovers that her inmate status means there's no chance she'll stay in the hospital. In fact, when she asks for a blanket... They tell her the hospital does not provide blankets to its patients. Vanessa is stitched up and cleaned, and then she's told she's going back to prison. She still has not seen her daughter again and has no idea where she is. So they took me back immediately, laid me at the back of a bucket, but as I was going to the bucket kind of a thing they had, they brought my child to me and she was wrapped in a towel. The only thing I could see was her face. The officer was holding her upside down and sweep her face through my face. And then they just took her. And then they laid me at the back of the bucky on my stomach, nothing underneath me. And there was like welded seats in this bucky so I could at least hold on to these welded seats because the trip to the prison was very bumpy. So it felt like my stitches reopened. The pain was so severe that I actually collapsed. And then I woke up and I got to the prison and my daughter was laying next to me and she wasn't breathing properly. She was had a wheezing in the chest. She was struggling to breathe and I didn't know what was wrong with her. So this lady came, the same one who was checking on me before I went outside. 
she came in to take her away from me. And I said to her, where are you taking her? She didn't understand. I said, what's wrong with baby? And she said, baby, drink water. And she said she actually swallowed the fluid. So she went to pump her out. That's why she was a bit wheezing in her chest. I don't care if you're a prisoner or not. The way that Vanessa and her baby were treated was simply inhumane. The guard swung a newborn baby upside down. They didn't even bother to clear the child's airways when they had her in hospital. Time passes. Vanessa's baby grows. And although Vanessa is initially told that her child will no longer be allowed in the prison from the age of three, when her daughter is two, she's told the rules have changed and she's now required to find someone to take her child or she'll be sent to a Thai orphanage. And then I could only stay up there for 15 days and then they took me back to the room where the mothers are, so my daughter to sleep next to me. I actually struggled with her because she didn't sleep at night and I didn't know what was wrong with her. So when the volunteer doctor told me that she's a colic baby, I didn't know what that was. Yeah, that was hectic, but I had this one lady helping me because when she cried inside, I sat outside and I cried because I didn't know what. They told me she must leave. The policy has changed from three years to one year. She was two years already by then, uh, two and a half years. So six months she had to leave, they said. If not, you were put in an orphanage in Thailand. And then um, I had to contact home. Then my best friend, Melanie Holmes, contact and say she would like to take her because she have a daughter the same age as my daughter. And that uh, because my mom was suicidal, my mom couldn't handle my situation very well. My sister was going, my sisters was going through something. I really, it really affected my family badly. You know, sometimes when we go through something, it's not only us that's suffering. It's the people that love us that also suffer. So I told them not to tell my grandfather. I was very close to my grandfather. And then I, I told them not to tell him in the letter. I said that I would tell him myself. So I wrote my grandfather a letter, but my letter didn't reach him in time. He got hold of a U magazine and he read my story. So my grandfather couldn't like cope with that. He had a heart attack. So I could never forgive myself. I felt I was the cause of his death. And I found it very hard to forgive myself. So that was a struggle for me. Vanessa not only loses her grandfather, but now she has to give up her daughter too. Yeah, so my best friend came and my daughter had to leave because I didn't want her to go to an orphanage. I didn't know how to prepare her. I didn't know what to do. I kind of started to tell her that you have to go to South Africa and I paint that South Africa is beautiful. You won't shower outside. You shower with hot water. Yeah, we shower with cold water. You're going to sleep on a bed. Yeah, we sleep on the floor. You will have toys. You will have other children. You know, I started painting South Africa beautiful for her and she started looking forward to South Africa and she also spoke Thai. And then I had magazines, which I got from the uh, Americans. And so I could show her what is a bed, what does a bed look like? Because we don't have beds. Uh, the beds, that small beds, when I came in with that older ladies who slept in a bed, they, they were not there long because the prison were overcrowded and they have to remove those beds. I don't think it even lasts close to a year. So I would show her in the magazines and then she started looking forward to South Africa and she started saying that she wants to go to South Africa. So the day that she had to leave, she was excited. I was happy she's excited, but because what I feared if she doesn't want to go. I was hurting. I was afraid. I was scared. Uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. But uh, the day she had to leave, she just a few minutes before she had to leave, my daughter said she's not going. And she was speaking Thai and she was telling me, 
actually she spoke to the officer and she was telling the officer the officer must open the gate and she told the officer uh but but to like open the gate and i asked her my why and she said to me chanmay by africa dialogue i'm not going to south africa anymore and i asked her my why and she said no you chanya you got me i want to be with my mother yo that ripped my heart hey like ripped me and uh, that is what i was scared of that is what i feared and um she came in and she sat next to me and i got i started having a panic attack and i started like having an anxiety attack at the same time i started struggling to breathe and uh i was starting to shake i didn't know what to do you know and then the officer came and she said to me that i must not break down in front of my child i must be strong you know she made me swallow my tears and swallow everything you know how difficult that is to really suppress your emotions i felt like a knot in my chest and i felt I couldn't breathe like I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm going to collapse right here. And I just stood there. I didn't know what to do. I don't know for me what happened there was a miracle. You know because the only thing when I was standing there I could say I was like Jesus help me. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what to do. That's all I said. Help me. And then something happened for me up until to this day. That's a miracle. She jumped down. She looked at me and she said to me, "Okay, Chantai Africa Thai." Okay, I will go to South Africa. But me tong ma lelio. But mother you must come soon. I looked at her and I didn't know what to say because I don't know how soon I'm going to come. So I said to her, I will come soon. And then they opened the gate for her. She went out, she greeted the officers and uh, you know, I was so weak. I just went on my knees and I was holding on to the bars and she came and I I couldn't anymore. The tears just started coming in. You know what she did? She took a piece of tissue and she wiped my tears and she said, "We may make it long. Mother, don't cry. Mother, you will come soon." You know that three-year-old strengthened me. And when she left the gate outside and she started screaming, "Oh my word!" I felt like I was right there. My heart was torn in two. I'm going to collapse. The only afterwards, the officer came to tell me she screamed because she saw the dog for the first time. I mean, she hadn't seen men. My daughter hadn't been outside. She hadn't seen a car. She actually got sick in the car. She kept on vomiting, and you know that scream. She screamed. You know, a mother knows a child when she's naughty or the child is just in danger. You know the different screams. But that scream, she was reminding me of the day I got arrested, and I screamed at that police officer. It sounded like the same scream, but broke my heart. I could not help. I could not run after her to comfort her. I couldn't tell her it's gonna be okay. Yo, and that ripped me. Of all the powerful moments in Vanessa's story, I think I could most vividly picture this one. There is often no greater bond than between a mother and child. In that prison, her daughter was all Vanessa had, and she was all her daughter had. That image of Vanessa on her knees. finally giving in to a wave of emotion clinging to the bars as her daughter dabs at her tears and perhaps the worst part is that Vanessa truly has no idea when she'll see her daughter again and when she finally receives her sentence 3 years after being arrested she begins to lose all hope that she will ever see her child again Yeah, it took me some time to to get back 
you know, I really struggled when she left. And she struggled when she came to South Africa because of not knowing my friends, not speaking the language, not knowing the food, scared of the phone, scared of the swimming pool, scared of men. Oh, my child was scared of a lot of things. And then she also had to see a child psychologist because she couldn't cope. My friend couldn't touch her. My friend couldn't wash her. My friend couldn't do anything to my child. It's only her husband. So that was quite difficult for me to deal with that. But uh, mother's always a mother. It was hard. It was very, very hard. Yeah, I had to deal with a lot of things because of, I felt like I deserve it because I'm so, my grandfather died. I caused people so much pain and then my daughter have to go through this. So, you know, I had to really forgive myself as well, um, which I did though. Yeah, then I got called to court. I went to court, didn't understand, came back. And then I realized I received a death sentence that was commuted to life because of my child. So that was 100 years. And 100 years is 100 years in Thailand. It's not 25 years. So that really knocked me. I was just like, I'm not going to make it to get out of this place. You know, I kind of like starting to lose hope. As a quick aside... I realized after talking to Vanessa, when I was looking at another story you'll hear on this podcast later in season one, that she would have been in jail in Thailand when the 2004 tsunami hit. At 7.58am local time on the 26th of December in Thailand, an earthquake struck with its epicenter off the west coast of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. It was an undersea megathrust earthquake that registered a magnitude of between 9.1 and 9.3. This resulted in one of the most destructive natural disasters in recorded history, in which close to 230,000 people would lose their lives. Thailand was particularly hard hit, with many resorts and homes near the beach being completely destroyed. When the wave hit... Vanessa was in the prison. Here's how she described living through that particular event. We actually felt the vibration in the prison, one building where we stayed, like cave, like in half. The floor went in half, and then it also like uh, some places open. I remember there's a place we stood and prayed, and suddenly, you know, it started felt like a, a whirlpool underneath us. And then it, like a piece of the, the cement or whatever fell in, and so there were water. And in the other buildings, the tiles lifted. Uh, so we had to move out from that building to another building because they had to like redo that building. Yeah, it did hit. And the prison, you know, there were so many visitors coming to visit and tell them of family members that died. Uh, we actually made things together in the prison to send outside, to help outside. Yeah, it was really, really a sad time. So Vanessa is facing 100 years in prison. In other words, she won't leave Thailand alive. She appeals and no change is made to her sentence. She appeals yet again and her sentence is reduced to 35 years. In Thailand, the king is able to offer a pardon to certain prisoners. So this is Vanessa's next option. 
After five years, I applied for a pardon, a royal pardon application to the King of Thailand to ask for leniency and mercy to either reduce my sentence or send me home. Well, my pardon was rejected. I waited three years for an answer. It was rejected. I didn't have the money for that pardon. So a lady from Cape Town, she read about me and she paid for that pardon. So I, I was eight years in prison when my pardon got rejected. So I lost hope. I fell into a deep depression, suffered from anxiety and panic attacks, uh, which took me like three years. Then I could only apply for a pardon again after two years. Yeah, that was kind of difficult. And then our government was doing a treaty transfer with Thailand. And then it got stopped because that's the time my pride was there and some armed deals. I don't know. There was a lot of things happening, but we didn't get the news. Yeah, so then the, the treaty got stopped. So, yeah, that was kind of hectic and difficult. So that means that we're stuck in that place. But then the king of Thailand gave amnesty. Every year, the 5th of December, it was his birthday. So he would give amnesty to all the inmates, but different amnesty for different cases. So drug cases got the least, and sometimes we don't even get any amnesty, but the murder cases got every year. So they get their sentence like half reduced. Yeah, the king amnesty. So I did get an amnesty that reduced my sentence. I got four amnesties. So in 2000. And 10, I needed one more amnesty. So the king gave amnesty. So I got another amnesty, which reduced my sentence from 18 years for the two years, because the amnesties helped my sentence from 35 years to be reduced to 18 years. So I needed one more amnesty. So I got another amnesty, which reduced it for two years. So then my sentence was left for 16 years, six months and 16 days. I don't know why the sixes, but that is what it was. In 2010, I was already 16 years in prison. So my release date was in October, the 30th, one day before my daughter turned 16. So when I let my family know I'm coming home, some of them didn't believe me because I, every year I'll say I come home. <laughs> so, yeah, then just before my release, I got news that my best friend who raised my daughter, she died of a heart attack, which was very difficult for me to deal with because she left her two daughters and my daughter behind. A few weeks after, I got uh, the missionary again visiting me to tell me that they called from South Africa that my sister died of a heart attack. I was just like, what is it going to take for me to get out of this place? You know, it's like the hurt and the pain didn't stop. And then, you know, I was close to going home. I got scared. I got afraid. Will I be able to cope? Will I find a job? Will I be able to be a mother? Will I be able to start again? You know, and then I realized I got so used to the Thai people. I spoke the Thai language. Now that I'm going home, it seems like my people at home are strangers to me. Vanessa finally has a release date. She spent 16 years in prison for a crime she did not intend to commit. Back in South Africa, her daughter has grown up without her. The child's only memory of a woman clinging to the bars of a prison cell. Then her friend, who would have been an absolutely valuable link in reconnecting with her daughter, dies before Vanessa can even set foot back on South African soil. She quite rightly wonders, how much more do I have to take? Soon though, despite her fears and misgivings, She's transferred to a repatriation centre where she will await her flight back to South Africa. But Thailand is not finished with her yet. 
Do you know that I had to pay for my own transport to the airport? I had to pay the office. They charged me for petrol to take me to the airport. I could not believe it. And when I got to the airport, I had missionaries. They allowed me to at least see. So that was nice, please. But I was very scared. I was so scared. And you know, when I was, only I believed when I was in the air, in the plane, that I'm on my way home. But before then, I didn't trust. I thought they might call me back. I might, something might have gone wrong. And because they have released the wrong person before. So I was just like, um, I'm not safe until I'm in the air, you know. And when I'm in the air, I broke down. Um, when I was like two hours close to South Africa, and then I kept on asking the air hostess, <laughs> how far am I? And um, when she said like in half an hour, I started having an anxiety attack. And um, when I landed, I could not believe. And I made it home alive, insane. <laughs> For Vanessa, time has stood still in that Thai prison. But in South Africa, 16 years have passed. Her loved ones have died. Others have aged. For her daughter, an entire childhood has come and gone. Seeing my daughter 16, it was weird. Seeing my mom so old. And just seeing my friend not being there, my sister not being there, and some of the family members I lost. Yeah, and then my friend's husband asked me if I could stay with them and help him. He was still, it was still, I mean, fresh about his wife dying. He was really struggling. He struggled. Again, whatever your belief system, the universe works in some really weird and wonderful ways sometimes. Although Vanessa never got to embrace her best friend and thank her for raising her child, she was there, just in time to step in and help her friend's grieving family. Sixteen years after her friend had given the ultimate gift to Vanessa by saving her child from a future in an orphanage, Vanessa was able to, in some small way, pay back that kindness. Vanessa would go on to write a book about her experiences and she reflects on the years that followed her release. Also a book of mine has been out, it's called Drug Mule, 16 Years in a Thai Prison. Yeah, they did phenomenally well, still doing well though. Yeah, you know, sometimes when we go through traumatic experiences or something happening in our lives, and you just sometimes, you know, I did lose hope. I did give up on life. And that's why I fell into a depression. That you sometimes think you won't be able to make it through the situation. But, you know, when I look back, that I survived 16 and a half years in a Thai prison, giving birth, coming out and still being sane. I hope so. <laughs> and, and you sometimes just think, you know, yo, I suffered. I never would speak to people to have self, who have pity on me, you know, or feel sorry for me. It's more like, look what the Lord has done for me. And, you know, don't you give up. Don't you let go. Don't you allow your circumstances to cause you to commit suicide or give up on life or turn to drugs, alcohol, or 
you know, just throw your life away. There is hope. There's hope. I found that hope in that situation, and that is what carried me through and caused me to do what I'm doing today. And our situations always, it's not, it's not nice. It's, it's difficult. It's hard. And we can never compare uh, situations. Everybody faced different situations, and that is what I always tell people because they were like, no, man, you give me hope. I said, but your situation is hard and difficult for you. It wasn't easy. You know, so never compare. Just be grateful that you made it through. And then you can encourage someone else with your situation. I know many people don't because they feel ashamed and embarrassed. So they cause shame to keep them back from helping someone else. But uh, and also your situation always is always for the benefit of others. And, you know, my situation brought out a book. It has brought me to, to do speaking at different companies. It's caused me to you know, minister at different churches, do women camps, um, go into youth, go into schools, universities, and um, do counseling, uh, having different projects that I'm doing. Like right now, I'm busy with a hike, which I want to take women on, you know, to get a mentally, spiritually, and physically hike. Because so many women is going through so many things. And I just have a love for women because they endure so much. They go through so much. And yet they can have that smile and yet they can put that makeup on. And yes, they are screaming from the inside because they feel like they're dying on the inside. Yeah, I'm using my experience, you know, to to help others for what I'm doing today. And it gives me great fulfillment. It makes me happy to see someone else rise from their present predicament, you know, regain their strength, their self-worth, their, their joy, their peace back again. That gives me great joy to really see that in others. I will leave a link to Vanessa's book in the show notes of the podcast and share it on social media too. I wondered about how Vanessa's daughter had coped with what was essentially her own experience of being in an emotional prison, separated from her mother for so long. My daughter's doing well. We have a good relationship now. We have not had a good relationship. It was hard. It was tough. It was very, very difficult. And then my friend wasn't here to help me. I remember when I took her to the doctor, and she, her, her trauma, she would get it in her legs and she can't walk. So she struggled with that for a very long time. And then the doctor asked me, I must tell him of her past. So I just looked at the doctor and I started to cry. And he looked at me, he says, no, just tell me about her past. And I just look at him and I said, I can't. And he's like, why? I said, I didn't raise her. I don't know. And my friend is dead. I don't know. And that really broke me that day. And the doctor just stood there and looked at me. And he's like, okay, it's okay. <laughs> but then I realized that I've missed so much of her life. Yeah, but I'm very grateful today for where we are at. We have a very good relationship. We're doing very well. She's also counseling. She's a wellness practitioner. She deals with young adults. Uh, she loves dealing with young adults. Yeah, she also life coaching. She's, she's, doing, she's doing well. And our relationship is much, much better. So we're doing well as, as well. Yeah, also encourage parents out there, you know, don't give up on your children because sometimes you think there's no way return f for them. You know, don't lose hope. 
Throughout this entire conversation, I couldn't help but notice that not once did Vanessa reference the fact that she was put into this entire situation by someone else. And I asked her if she didn't perhaps have any anger toward the man who so callously tricked her into carrying drugs and completely altered her life's trajectory. Of course. I, um, that is what part of why I fell in such a deep depression. I had too much anger. I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of hatred. And it's my anger that really caused me to fall into a very deep depression. I hated so much that I couldn't control the hate, that the hate and the anger was controlling me. It was really eating away at me. I was also newly coming to God, and then I didn't know you can't pray like that. I prayed that God should kill you know, there should be accidents, there should be something happening. Until, you know, because I suffered so much with anxiety, depression and panic attacks and I lost a lot of weight. I had, I couldn't even walk. I was, I was so depleted. I had somebody washing me, somebody feeding me. I couldn't eat. I got so scared that I was going to die. I came at the place where I actually gave up hope, but then I started having hope, you know. It's like God just gave me hope again because I was so angry at God was very angry at him for allowing this to happen to me. So I don't have nothing to do with him. But you know, when he showed me that I'm my own enemy, that the anger and the hatred I have is what's destroying me. And then I realized that I'm punishing myself on top of being in a prison and other people who has put me in that place. He's walking around free and not even worry about anything. And yeah, I'm suffering and I'm punishing myself more. And they have more power over me because of my anger that I'm having. I'm destroying myself more and more. But then I realized I need to fight for my life. And it was a process. But I was not, I didn't forgive because of the other person. I gave for myself because I was fighting for myself. That's when I started taking the, the bread or something and push it down my throat. So I can have something to eat. I just couldn't eat. I had no desire to eat. So I started fighting and then I started, you know, start getting like, hold back again. And that is how I forgave because not for the other person, I forgave for myself to fight for my own life. And I just told myself, you deserve to be happy again. You deserve to have a life again. Your child is waiting for you. Your family is waiting for you. That is when I started fighting back. I didn't realize that anger can be such poison, actually can destroy you completely. And that is why even up until today, I do not keep anger. I do not keep unforgiveness in my heart. As soon as something enters my heart, I deal with it immediately and I get rid of it. I refuse to have it in my heart. This is how I guard my heart because I know what it can do to you. You know, when you forgive, you forgive to set yourself free. You know, and that is why I have the peace that I have. Because I realized I had to do it for myself. If you'd like to reach out to Vanessa or you'd like her to speak at an event, here are her contact details. I'll link them in the show notes and put them on social media too. So what I do now, I'm a counselor. So I do counsel like different situations. What people go through nowadays is we know we're living in a world where, you know, with the virus and a lot of things is happening, people losing their jobs, you know, there's divorce, there's depression, anxiety, panic attacks. So if anybody is in need of counseling, they can contact me. I will give the contact details at the end 
and I also am a motivational speaker. I speak at companies. I have spoken at a lot of different companies. I spoke for Pick and Pay. I spoke for Clover. I spoke for NetBank. I, I spoke for different banks as well. I spoke for different companies, uh, POH. And then also I do minister at churches as well, do women camps. I, I speak to, I do women conferences as well. And I also go into schools, youth, universities. And I also do like hikes with women because I just believe that um, a woman needs to be healed from the inside out, not from the outside in, because I realize that if you do not deal with your issues, you know, it will really destroy everything, your relationships. Your, it doesn't matter what relationship it is, if you do not deal with whatever it is you have gone through in life. So it's important that you do deal with those things and also to enjoy life and also to take care of yourself and love yourself and uh, make the best out of this life because of especially what we are facing with and so many people has died in this world. Uh, so my email is info at VGSE. .co.za or www at vgse.co.za. People can contact me there if they have any inquiries or they want to book me. Thank you, Nicole. I really, really appreciate it. It was such an enormous pleasure to speak with Vanessa. We've stayed in touch since I recorded this interview, and she's put me in touch with many other survivors of various other situations whose stories you'll hear in the future. Vanessa's story really struck me. Because, really, she was just an innocent party in all of this. And she had so much stolen from her. But it wasn't her suffering that struck me. It was how she managed to turn it all around. It would have been so easy for her to just slip into the black hole she found herself in in Thailand and never again emerge. Back in South Africa, things were far from ideal as she readjusted, but as difficult as it was, she fought to reclaim her life, and now she helps others to do the same. Try to catch me howling at the I Lived Through This tells the true stories of ordinary people who've survived unimaginable situations. If you'd like to share your story of survival, you can head over to our Facebook page and fill in the form, or you can email livedthroughthis at gmail.com. I Lived Through This releases new stories every second week. In between, you can head over to our social media platforms, we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and join in the conversation with our survivors. Thank you for listening.